Last week was the anniversary of the start of World War I. It was a war that seemed to unexpectedly start, and with all of the military alliances of the Central Powers and the Triple Entente, it quickly spread from the Balkans. Welcome to the Bible in the News. This is John Billington with you this week. It was July the 28th, 1914, when Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, which in the end dragged in Germany, Russia, France, and Great Britain, and, importantly, the Ottoman Empire. When America finally joined, it was dubbed the War to End All Wars. When the war was over, the map had completely changed. The most important development that came out of the war was the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the Balfour Declaration. And we should say the, the British taking, the, uh, taking, as was then to be called, Palestine, the Holy Land. But what we want to consider this week is the Lion of Tarshish and her young lions, in particular a specific young lion, the United States of America. Many people look at the prophecies and do not clearly see America. But at the time of World War I, the relationship she had with Britain and the common uh, biblical leanings that their leaders had, it made the perfect climate to support the Jews and the aspirations of a state. To begin, I believe that we have to spend a moment to identify Britain. And if you come to the prophecy of Ezekiel 38, you can read verses 11 to 13. But the prophecy is about a northern invasion of nations that comes down on Israel. But there's a group of nations that we'll just mention in verse 13. Uh, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, to the northern invader, uh, invading power, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? The translation of the New English Bible has um, the translates the merchants of Tarshish as the traders of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof. And so here's this power that is that is resisting the northern invader. And with the mention of the young lions uh, accompanying the the uh, Tarshish power, we can conclude that Tarshish would in the end, have an empire, or at least would have colonies. And we would know from other scriptures, Isaiah 23, verses 6 and 7, and Jonah 1 and verse 3, that Tarshish was far away from Israel. Verse, uh, sorry, uh, Isaiah 23, uh, Tarshish would be sea traders. And from Tarshish, you would be able to mine silver, iron, tin, and lead. You get that in Ezekiel 27, verse 12. Uh, along with Jeremiah 10 and verse 9. And so Tarshish would be a, a maritime power in the latter days, and it would assist the Jews in returning to the land. And you get that from Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 9. When you take the time to go through the list, you actually come to really only one possibility, and it's Great Britain. Some have tried to say it's Spain, on the fact that she was not a power that assisted the return of the Jews in any way, I simply think the case is closed. As this is the Bible in the News and not a full Bible class, I'm not going to spend any longer going through this, but I'm going to just draw your attention to the Bible Magazine, Volume 20, Number 3, and you can get that in the archives uh, on the Bible Magazine website. So the question we really want to get to is, does America belong to 
the young lions of Tarshish? Does it belong to this group of nations? First off, I think the main reason that some would suggest otherwise is due to the fact that she is not counted as part of the Commonwealth today. So when you go to the Commonwealth Games, you will not see an American representative. Although that might be true, the young lions that Ezekiel speaks clearly of gives us the picture of offspring, offspring with whom she trades with, i.e. her colonies. It was in 1606 when King James I, and this was the King James who commissioned the King James translation of the Bible, he by royal charter established the Virginia Company of London, which was an English joint stock company with the purpose of establishing colonial settlements in North America. The following year, in 1607, Jamestown, named after James I, was established as James Fort. It was the first permanent English settlement in the Americas and became the capital of the colony of Virginia. The American archaeologist who specializes in Virginia's colonial period, William Kelso, writes that Jamestown is where the British Empire began. This was the first colony in the British Empire. To this day, one of the best-known nicknames for, for, uh, for Virginia is Old Dominion. The seal and coat of arms of the colony in use from 1607 to 1624 are um, actually quite, uh, quite interesting. Uh, it has on it the words in Latin, uh, and, and let's be honest here, folks, I, I don't do Latin, but it looks like Endat Virginia Quintem which I guess is, uh, is five, because it indicates that Virginia was the fifth of the realms or domains of the crown. And at that time, the kings and queens of England also claimed the thrones of Scotland, Ireland, and France, which is where you got the, uh, the five from. So Virginia was the, really the first colony, as we said. And after Virginia, Britain continued to colonize the Americas, and grew to, uh, which obviously grew to include uh, the colony of Plymouth, the province of Maine, the province of New Hampshire, the um, Connecticut colony, the province of New York, and the province of New Jersey, and of course there was, there was others. And today, there's no escaping the colonial history of the United States, especially if you travel along the eastern seaboard. Names uh, such as the region of New England, states such as New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, cities such as Manchester and Cambridge. And in Virginia, you can still attend Old Dominion University and cheer for the college basketball team, the Old Dominion Monarchs. One of the larger freight companies in the eastern states is Old Dominion Freight Lines. America's British roots are clear, with Britain's first colony on her shores. But America was also the first cub to leave the family. A cartoon from the 1700s depicted Britain's loss of the 13 colonies, as it was at that time, as Britannia losing her limbs. A little bit gruesome, uh, but it certainly was a sad day for Britain. However, those roots have proved to be the foundation of a very close relationship between the countries, as it still is today. In the book, The Grandeur of England and the, uh, and the Atlantic Community, written by George E.G. Caitlin, he writes the following, The United States is no longer a new country, but an old one, and it can regard, unlike others, its colonial past, not with an adolescent resentment, but with historical pride. It is the land of a civilization which, from Magna Carta on, has used the fabric of law for the fulfillment of liberty.' 
The words, uh, the, uh, the words are those of President Johnson. Historically, it is the greatest beyond all measure of the British colonies, as well as the undisputed leader of the English-speaking world. And although, like them, America is a mixture of all peoples, and without much discrimination most rightly such, he says, the British Isles are yet the land to which General George C. Marshall, then Secretary of State, speaking before the pilgrims in London, referred as the mother country. Mothers and daughters, he says, by no means always agree, but it is an indissoluble special relationship registered in the pages of the centuries. With Britain's vote to leave the European Union, I expect the relationship will now actually thrive much better, uh, and especially in the uh, area of trade. And although America is not part of the Commonwealth, she is actually Britain's top export destination. That's quite important when you look at that New English translation we uh, referred to of Ezekiel 38 and 13 as the traders of Tarshish. America is the world's largest importer of British goods to the tune of approx uh, approximately uh, $50 billion. That was last year. Not too shabby for a colony. And we started out speaking of the perfect climate that existed within the leadership of Britain and America at the time of World War I for the support of the idea of a Jewish state. It really comes out of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah 31 and 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. Strong says it is a dry land, a coast, an island. And, he's, and, uh, and the, the, the verse carries on and says that what's going to be declared in the isles afar off, uh, God says uh, that we're going to say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. I it, I think it's absolutely incredible, because the word of God did go out, and it was to be going out in islands, coastlands, afar off, and carry the message that God would regather his people. And incredibly, if you go back, actually, almost as soon as the Bible was translated into English, that message was picked up. And uh, Britain established the colonies around the world, and as she did this, she took the Bible with her. And it's an inc the incredible story of the English Bible. And again, we're going to refer you, because we can't take forever here, refer you to Bible Magazine, Volume 24, Number 1, which covers that story uh, uh, much better than we're going to be able to do here. And I will mention, however, the first book printed in America, we went down there, we went to the Library of Congress, and actually had the Geneva Bible out in the, in the lobby of the Library of Congress, and we discovered that the first book that was printed in North America was called the uh, the Bay Psalms book. So it's quite amazing. As soon as as soon as the pilgrims get over here, they can and they get their hands on a printing press. What do they do? They print the Bay Psalms book. John Thomas wrote in the 1800s, and uh, he was looking at the prophecies of Tyre and Tarshish, and he wrote in Elpis Israel, so it'd be around 19, um, 1850. He writes uh, the following, and we've referred to it on this program many times, but it's because it's, uh, it's a good quote and it's relevant. He says, I know not whether the men who at present uh, contrive the foreign policy of Britain, whether they entertain the idea of assuming the sovereignty of the Holy Land and of promoting its colonization by the Jews. Their present intentions, however, are of no importance one way or the other, because they will be compelled by events soon to happen, 
to do what, under existing circumstances, heaven and earth combined could not move them to attempt. The decree has long gone forth, which calls upon the Lion of Tarshish to protect the Jews. Incredible words. When you look back, it's exactly what happened. And John Thomas's expectation of Britain protecting the Jews was based on a number of prophecies, which I think is worth just noticing. noticing. Uh, Ezekiel 38, uh, we have already mentioned this one, uh, with the northern confederacy's invasion into Israel. In Isaiah 60, in verse 9, you get there uh, that Tarshish is assisting the Jews returning to their land. We already referred to that one, actually, at the beginning. And the the other one is Isaiah chapter 18, quite an incredible prophecy. Um, and he looked at that and, trans, and translated the beginning of verse 1 as, Ho to the land of shadowing wings. But he foresaw that it pointed to Britain bringing back the people that were scattered and peeled, the Jews, back to their land. So I think what also is interesting is, as we look at Britain, is as it's developed in time, as history's gone forward, the interesting role of these young lions, and we don't have time to talk about the other young lions, but Canada and Australia have been involved for sure, and um, Australia was there actually when the British were taking uh, Palestine. Uh, the Camel Corps were there in uh, in full swing, but America had a, had to play a role that was very important in protecting in protecting the Jews. This protecting role that we see in Tarshish is obviously a characteristic that has been passed down to the young lions through the influence of the English Bible, and not all the lions have protected the Jews all of the time, but it seems there has always been at least one to do that job. And the effect, in the, uh, the effect and influence of the English Bible in Britain and America in relation to the Balfour Declaration and the establishment of Israel is examined in a book that I uh, got uh, fairly recently called God, Guns, and Israel. And the author, Jill Hamilton, shows the profound effect that the Bible had on the various leaders that were involved with the establishment of the state. In her prologue, Hamilton writes the following about the time of the Balfour Declaration. She writes, It is unlikely that the Jews would have been able to establish themselves in Palestine in the three decades after 1918 had it not been for the enthusiasm of the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George and members of his government. Nor would they have uh, established their official footing there without equal support from President Woodrow Wilson and the government of the United States of America. With all the determination in the world, the Jews would not have been able or, uh, sorry, would not have been in a position to expand their hold. Quite simply, Israel might never have existed. I'm sure God would have found a way, as he always does. Uh, as Mordecai said to Esther, if you don't do it, someone else will. But, nonetheless, in time, unfortunately, sadly, Britain turns its back on the Jews under the leadership of Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain prior to World War II and uh, the weasel Clement Attlee following World War II. And uh, after the war, it was a man by the name of Ernest Bevan, who was the foreign secretary, and he was vehemently, actually, uh, against supporting the Jews and their aspirations uh, to return. And when you look at history, this is certainly uh, a low point for Britain. But it was Dave Billington who actually recently commented that Britain, had Britain continued its support for a Jewish state in Palestine, it would have never ceased to be a colony. Uh, Israel... Had to the Jews had to stand on their own two feet, 
Well, on that idea, the following quote, quote from the journalist Arthur uh, Kostler noted the irony shortly after the State of Israel was proclaimed, and he said, um, sorry, he he didn't say, but he was noticing that the two British, British foreign secretaries who had helped bring about the rebirth of Israel, Balfour and Bevan. He says, the first, Balfour, gave the Jews their legal charter. The second, Bevan, uh, the second, by refusing any compromise, forced them to fight it out and thus pass the test of nationhood. And if you go into into history, uh, refusing any compromise would be would be a nice way to put it. As I said, he's uh, well, him and Attlee, they're both they're both a couple of weasels. Anyway, during World War II, it seemed that the Jews had no friends at all, at least that had the power to change anything. In Britain, many of those who had been a part of the government during World War I had now died, including Belfort. Uh, he had died in 1930. However, it's not long uh, after the war, and America starts to step up. In the book, again, God, Guns, and Israel, Hamilton comments on this situation and says that Truman was about to take on their mantle. God had raised up another in a land even farther away from the shores of Israel. After the vote in the UN, Britain set the date for the end of the mandate to be midnight on Friday, May the 14th, 1948. And at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, David Ben-Gurion read out the Declaration of Independence so that it would not interfere with the Sabbath. In the UN, a movement was afoot to scuttle the plans of the State of Israel. Jill Hamilton writes, If enough countries voted for a trusteeship under the United Nations... Ben-Gurion's declaration would have been wasted time. The last British ship sailed out that night out of the then Palestinian waters. Not that it was the, they just called it, they called, the British called the colony Palestine. That would, that's just uh, where that's, why that's uh, mentioned that way. Hamilton continues, 11 minutes after the expiration of the British mandate, Truman made his declaration in Washington. Soon afterwards, in the hall of the United Nations, the American representative who had been urging the, former, uh, the forming of a trusteeship quietened the room. A message on ticker tape had just been received from Truman, and he read it out. This government has been informed that, the Jew, uh, that a Jewish state has been proclaimed in Palestine, and recognition, that, uh, recognition has been requested by the provisional government itself. The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority of the new state of Israel. With those words, legitimacy was granted. Uh, this is Hamilton continuing. This is her words now. With those words, uh, legitimacy was granted to the new state of Israel under international law. She continues, Ezekiel's prophecy was fulfilled. The wandering Jew had a home to return to, and Israel's land and the people were again united. Arab armies would now be fighting against a recognized state, and Truman's rapid action and recognition of the state and its provisional gov government nullified the proposal to place Palestine under a temporary United Nations trusteeship. So when we consider whether America is one of the young lions, honestly, there's no doubt. At the first, she was, uh, she was the first colony of Britain, and she was heavily influenced by the Bible, and does become the first to leave the nest. But, lest there be any doubt, she builds an extremely close relationship, not only limited to trade with the mother country, 
and in turn, she plays a huge role in protecting Israel. Jill Hamilton recounts Harry Truman's visit to the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York when he was introduced as the man who helped create the state of Israel. Truman replied, What do you mean helped create? I was Cyrus. I am Cyrus. We do not have time to look at the history since that time, but we cannot exclude the assistance that America gave to Israel in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Israel had been taken by a huge surprise when the Arabs attacked on their most holy day. Israel needed desperate help, and President Nixon hit the roof when he learned that Henry Kissinger had delayed the airlift because of a concern that it would offend the Russians. Despite the opposition of his National Security and Foreign Policy Brain Trust, Nixon ordered the airlift, saying, We are going to get blamed just as much for three planes as for 300. And later, in an exasperation at the slow start of U.S. support, he said, Use every plane that we have, everything that will fly. Finally, after several days of international politicking amongst the upper echelons of the administration, Nixon got his airlift, Operation Nickelgrass. Over the course of the airlift, 567 missions were flown, delivering over 22,000 tons of supplies and an additional 90,000 tons were delivered to Israel by sea. Later in her life, Israel's Prime Minister Golda Meir would admit that upon hearing of the airlift during a cabinet meeting, she began to cry. Well, there's more that we could talk about, but that's all we have time for. Come back next week and we'll have another edition of the Bible in the News. Take care.